Have you ever wondered what is the reality? Will we ever be able to know the real, real truth? How come different people have completely different interpretations, even for things that are somewhat objective and universal for our common sense? From Plato to the Matrix movie, people have spent centuries to understand the theories of reality. So let's enter Plato's cave and decode the secrets of the truth. Hi, I'm Talia, and I'm Joshua. And welcome to our podcast, The Uncommon Senses, where we reflect on the nature of knowledge and how we know what we claim to know. Okay, so for this episode, we'll kind of introduce you to the idea of reality. And some further questions about our common sense world, as well as deconstruct your knowledge and belief systems. So basically, think about how you see the world. And this episodes, we plan to make it like somewhat more, you know, fun and more like an introduction to different theories of reality. Because I think next episode we'll focus more on the philosophical concepts, which I'll hand it over to Joshua as he took a philosophy course last semester. So, just a disclaimer that we are not philosophy students, but we're pretty fascinated by anything philosophical, and we also know that what we are discussing is only be like the tip of an iceberg. And honestly, that's probably why we like philosophy, since we haven't really discovered the depressing parts yet, like Nietzsche. Yeah, I tempted to read some of some of his work, like Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And I kind of just gave up. <laughs> and yeah, I also, I think Joshua and I also heard about Nietzsche through one of the plays, which is called um, Death and the Maiden by Ariel Dorfman, yeah, which is a fabulous play. That's kind of where we first kind of know, that's where I first kind of know about this guy. And then Joshua also read Crime and Punishment, which is on like morals and ethics. And I guess it's pretty bizarre as well, but then... <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess the reason why we like this is because we haven't discovered these parts yet. Um, but then I'm also quite sure, like, for any single field, any single thing that you're studying, when you're reaching a certain level, it will become, you know, enjoyable again. So you, you kind of just, it's a roller coaster ride. You reach, you, you're at a high point where you first discovered that you're like, this is so fun. But then as you progress, it's like, this is so depressing. But then at some point, it becomes enjoyable again. So just keep going with what you're doing. That's the conclusion, <laughs> and yeah. But then, if you have any like, if if you have an extensive philosoph- philosophy knowledge, uh, doesn't mean doesn't necessarily mean you you have like a philosophy degree or anything. But if you just really like it, then feel free to like reach out to us and like comment below and stuff. Okay, so let's just get into this ultimate reality thing. I guess the first question I want to raise is, how does the human mind determine reality? And essentially, one of the first ideas is that our mind is kind of like a butterfly net, which is designed to capture the butterfly, and then hence we only take in what we want to have. I think previously we also touched a little bit upon this, and yeah, basically in terms of knowledge, we lose as much as we gain. So this butterfly net thing shapes our reality. I guess one of the examples that I can bring out is the monkey business illusion which is um, you know, a psycho- psychology test to illustrate selective attention or inattentional blindness. I think they're the same terms. 
So essentially, you're going to watch a video, and at the very beginning, there is an instructions, and you're asked to focus on the number of times the basketball was passed between people wearing white T-shirts in the video, and then. As you're being very focused on counting the number of times the balls has been passed around, oftentimes you won't even notice that someone wearing a gorilla suit just walked inside the room, or the background color of the stage has even changed. So this kind of illustrates the butterfly net, you know, idea of how we take in of how what how our reality is being shaped, that we only take in what we want、uh, to form our reality, and. Basically, the directions that were given to us in the、uh, monkey business solution example determines what our reality is and what we observe. And despite from you know this, the fact that there's an instruction given to you, there's many occasions where our experiences, our personal experiences, we also have a heavy impact on what we take in. So, for example, there's a Another test, also involving gorillas, where there's a radiologist and it, missing gorilla in a lung scan. So basically, what this is is we are being presented with a lung scan, and there's a gorilla on that lung scan. Like an, I think it's an X-ray scan or something. So for us, for like a typical person, the gorilla is quite hard to miss because it's just a gorilla in one of the lung scans. Like it's just there, and Its shape is pretty obvious, like because the lung scan just looks like a lung, and then the gorilla really stands out for us. Who, as normal people, we we don't really can't really read lung scans. But the interesting thing is, eighty three percent of the radiologists will actually miss the gorilla when they're examining the lung scan. I think the reason is because they have a lot of medical training and experiences, so they probably know what to look for and what to examine in the lung scan. And their attention will be more focused on what they need to know,、uh, rather than looking at the gorilla spotting out, you know, weird things in the lung scan, you know, spotting out the gorilla in the lung scan. And so, basically, this is very similar to the monkey business illusion situation, just like how, you know, when we are doing the monkey business illusion, we are given the instruction to count the number of times the ball is being passed at the beginning of the video. These radiologists also know what they need to look for in the lung scan, in from their medical experiences. So they're more likely to miss that gorilla from the lung scan. So maybe I can ask a question for you, Joshua. So, is there anything like that you realize where your reality differs from other people, perhaps based on your own personal experiences? So sometimes, you know, when you share certain things, and it turns out what you see is very different from other people. Yeah. Do you have any of those experiences?、Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I think an ex、uh, example, but I think all the all my um encounters are all very menial and very you know silly examples. So, uh, I can think of examples regarding you know sometimes I tell a joke or I tell you know. You know,、uh, something intended to laugh, and some people the responses aren't as I have you know anticipated. So,、um, sometimes perhaps the people that I told the joke to will respond in a way that you know they don't think it's funny, or even maybe they think it's offensive. So, I guess um, for, in my reality, perhaps I I think that you know um, 
you know, I'm being funny. I think it's a very funny thing to say, but perhaps to another person, this may not be as funny or they don't really find it as you know enjoyable as I have found. So I think this definitely brings out how um the how different there are different realities and there are diff uh, there are we can interpret things differently based on our own experiences and how you know our past um yeah our past history and how we're brought up yeah absolutely i think recall like when i previously talked about the aerial dwarfin play uh, death and the maiden so i don't want to spoil it for many people <laughs> but essentially yeah essentially we have like three characters and like the female character, uh, uh, so we have uh, Roberto, Gerardo, and Paulina. Paulina um, accused Roberto of kind of raping her when she, 20 years ago when she was, I think, a student or something. And basically, we have this, you know, discussion between, uh, we, we see this dynamics between Paulina and Gerardo and the Gerardo and Roberto and basically these two men you know, have their own different perspectives on the issue. And we basically were kind of chosen, like, what side to pick because there isn't an absolute reality, basically, from that play. It's all up to our audience's, you know, personal interpretation. And, like, I remember me reading it as a woman. I really sided with Paulina from the very beginning. I think Paulina's accusations are valid. I have really emphasized with Paulina's experience even though somewhat she's presented as like a crazy woman at the very beginning so yeah and I asked some like uh, some uh, boys in our class and also some other girls in our class and they all like uh, honestly a majority of the girls sided with Paulina first because they kind of I don't know, they possibly resonate a little bit more with her experience and her accusations of sexual assault. So for Joshua, when you were reading that play, what was your initial thought? Well, you know, as, as a boy, I, I don't know if that, you know, plays in a big part, but I think, um, you know, essentially, I, I, I think I have a very different experience than you have, as mm. you stated. So when I was reading, I tend to um, think, trust more in... Uh, uh, G Gerardo, is it? I, I, on the men, So basically, so yeah. I tend to think like Paulina is more um crazed, and perhaps I was thinking mm. perhaps the trauma is making her see things, or her trauma is making her, you know, as slight, you know, even a slight provocation could cause like an overreaction to her. It maybe so. Uh -huh. I guess like both theories are equally valid. So on one hand, yeah. experiencing trauma could make you more sensitive and more, you know, able to remember things and and to have a heightened and um, sensual experience. But on another hand, I think um it can also create you know an oversensitive oversensitivity also create perhaps um hallucination or perhaps um a misconception of the world around you. So I guess um. Also, I think it comes down to, you know, as, you know, normal readers, so you and I, we don't really okay. have a really comprehensive knowledge of trauma. We don't really know, the, you know, as a person, we don't really know, you know, what, how does trauma affect a person? So I guess um, from the reason of why we view 
this literature differently is because uh-huh. we're basing it off our own experiences, our own, our own perhaps you would say trauma-free experiences. Um, <laughs> yeah, so of how, and we're kind of projecting ourselves onto the play. So I guess, you know, for you, you, you kind of adopt the character of Paulina. So you kind of, you know, understand the frustration of how no one trusted, no one trusts you. And you think yeah. that, you know, it's reflective of a wider phenomenon of perhaps like the Me Too movement where, you know, um, when some women, they bring forth their own really traumatizing experience of sexual assault and people don't listen to them. They think they're faking it. And, you know, there's this mm-hmm. frustration of why people won't yes. listen to them. And, you know, it brings forth a wider social injustice. And I guess right. as a man, um, when I was looking at that, perhaps we adopt the character of, you know, the the men basically in the play mm-hmm. so it's the, the idea of how you know um uh, uh, the idea of how um um we we don't really understand the perhaps the point of view from paulina and we just think that you know um perhaps if a more um prejudicial um point of view where we think that you know um because um uh, because um, of it's kind of this discrimination against people with like trauma. So we think that, you know, mm-hmm. they are abnormal because of what they experience is they are damaged people and we have to help them. But um, I, of course, this is a very um, discriminatory approach because um, of course the opinions and feelings of people who went through trauma are equally valid. And I guess for, you know, um, it also reflects a wider you know social phenomenon where um, there is a lot of, you know, so some people who aren't that good, they kind of abuse the system in which they use the accusation of, you know, um, sexual assault or accusation of, um, you know, abuse towards women as a kind of um, you know, tr- a- attempt to defame someone's reputation. So, you know, right. this overuse of, you know, the terminology such as, um, you know, trauma, uh, sorry, trauma or overuse of certain wordings could has a opposite effect in which society is kind of withdrawing itself to, um, f- from believing what certain, um, the, the traumatic experience of certain people because there's so much, you know, fakery or fraud in our modern society today. Yeah, I mean, that's really, really good, especially we touched upon this, like, movement and everything. I think it's, um, these traumas are like, you know, you know, valid and also we also can't overlook at the fact that people take advantage of this movement to kind of you know like what you've said defame other people and I honestly I think I, I think every anyone is going to hate those people because they only made those people who experienced real trauma and you know they're they're you know kind of them making a statement or like them sharing about their experience less valid because of people taking advantage of it. So speaking of like these personal experiences and like how, you know, they kind of impact how we see the world and how we see literature, um, I guess we can move on to the second idea of how we determine reality, which is through our interpretation. So just now we mainly talked about how our um, we determine reality through a butterfly net so we only take in what we want to see but this idea takes in how we can have different interpretations based on different person person experiences i guess just now we already touched upon on it from our different interpretations on the play and i guess um another example we can do is talking about like the perception of 
let's say two different animals and the ones that are picking are dogs and cows so i'm i think in our TOK class we definitely discussed about the significance of cows for different people so we talked about someone who is from spain where uh, you know cows or you know animals like that is <laughs> related to bullfighting and it's a symbol of strength and power and then very interestingly this from this worksheet that we got this guy also said like something like along the road you see a lot of giant cutout of bulls but that's just advertising for a kind of wine <laughs> that's just <laughs> very interesting that this guy have said um, and then we also saw an extract from someone who is from Zimbabwe um, and basically they mentioned that in traditional Shona culture uh, cows are a form of currency so they're payment for bride prices and they rarely eat beef uh, beef <laughs> they rarely eat beef <laughs> because uh, these um, beef are possibly used in important occasions or uh, rituals so we also see someone who is from Can Canada and they have a farming lifestyle where they see cows as staple food and income uh, and it represents home and this person's you know lifestyle raising cattle and uh, I remember this this I think it's a girl and she recognizes many different breeds of cows and she just feels like it's natural for her to chase cows and her lifestyle and then we also find someone from Sudan in the Dinka nation where cows are essential for daily living. They provide leather, they provide meat, they provide milk. And this person was very funny, like it was very interesting. Um, they wonder why Hindus regard cows as sacred and can't be slaughtered. And why would they keep cattle if they don't kill them for the meat? They obviously don't recognize the significance of cows. So this is kind of like what this person says from the extract. And I think it's interesting that cows in this Dinka nation in this, this, for this person um, is also sacred. However, they think that uh, if you just keep it, it, you don't really recognize the significance. You have to, you know, have this cow has to have some from like utility, some purpose in order for it to have this significance for this particular person. Um, however, this person also mentions that for more Sudanese living in a city, um, they will possibly be very indifferent to, you know, cow chasing or these, you know, connotation symbolism of cows. And then we also have someone who is from, who is from Barbados with an Hindu culture where cows are a, a symbol of maternity and they're respected in society and personally this person will not hurt the cows and this person is also a vegetarian and will not eat beef so from all of these people from a lot of different places around the world you know from Spain from Zimbabwe Canada Sudan Barbados we all have seen that with their own personal experience with their own culture we can just see how differently cows are being perceived around the world. And the second animal that I want to bring out is the idea of dogs. And I just realized it was also included in the worksheet. And I think it's kind of important because, yeah, we, we can definitely have a look at how dogs are very different among different cultures. So for uh, some, um, the significance of dogs is that it's a pet. It, they treat it as a family member. 
for some people, a dog is functional as a guard dog or a sled dog. And for some people, it's a part of a zodiac sign. There's a significant cultural value. And for some, it can be an ingredient for a dish. It can cook it. So I think <laughs> my, my, the reason why I kind of pick dogs is because I kind of want to bring us to that stereotype, you know, a Western stereotype towards Chinese. The Chinese people eat dogs. And I think, I think the past few years, there's also quite a lot of Asian hate. And we want to kind of talk about this because we are Asian. So just Joshua, have you eaten dog meat? Let's just talk, start from there. Com no, no, completely not. And, you know, I really? love dogs. I would never, you know, do such a thing. And I think it's, I, I you know, it, I mean, I met people from, you no know, cul different cultures than mine. And, you know, I'm very grateful to say that um, none of them have asked me have I eaten dogs before. And I, mm. I think it's, you know, it definitely shows progress in our modern society today where, you know, there's a better understanding of different cultures. But, you know, of course, there are still people who are ignorant and still think that, you know, all Chinese people eat dogs. And, yeah, and, you know, I'm not denying that, you know, there are some parts of our culture before, um, and some parts of, you know, or some regions in China that people do view dogs as a delicacy. So it actually um, rings truth to some, you know, um, a bit of a history before. So in the Qing Dynasty, there's this... Um, this kind of um, delicacy, uh, this delicacy that's enjoyed by the royalties during you know festivals or important occasions called gao dai guai. So essentially, mm. it's a a kind of a full course meal that it's you know just just have all sorts of really exotic animals. So for example, there's um like lips of a gorilla or like um a monkey head something like that, mm -hmm. and you know um and, and that's their way of life. That's their way of you know. Uh, their diet and how they uh, celebrate certain occasions and to be honest I think there should just be more um, more understanding of different um, of how we view uh, uh, how we view different cultures because we have to understand that not every culture everyone sees things as um, as you see them and I think that you know a better understanding definitely goes a long way and also as to not offend people's history and their cultural roots and you know as you've said before people should just really keep an open mind surrounding like um how uh, different lifestyles and how we should not really pass judgments just purely based on our, our own value systems yeah i totally agree because i have never eaten dog meat either and then i mean first of all this whole phrase like all stereotypes are generalizations are are kind of bad and then second of all yeah like what you mentioned like kind of like even if this is the case that some people have this certain dietary habit then you know why are we placing so much judgment on it i mean just because in some cultures it's possibly unacceptable or like weird since people perceive dogs as like family members and you're eating them for some cultures you know this is kind of disgusting for them but then it doesn't mean that that is the right way or that is the right culture because different people have different perceptions as what we've seen previously with the cow example you know similar to like people who eat beef so you know why is eating beef more somewhat acceptable than eating dogs you know because I, 
I, I just wrote in my notes that there's no white people eat cows stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> Since you know eating beef is, you know, this idea is not really widely acceptable in Hinduism culture or like the Zimbabwe Shona culture. However, we just place more, you know, acceptance around it because it's. I don't know. It's you know people do that in Western culture or whatever. Like it's just whenever you make stereotypes or make judgments about other people, like do think about it and do think about jump outside of your perception on a lot of different things. Actually, I just want to bring forth a point. What it reminds me of is this term called global monoculture, and it's this idea because you know, for example, because Western culture dominates. You know the global media or global like presence influence. So, um, essentially, their value systems has sort of been imposed as like the universal value system. We sort of have to, you know, believe that as you've said, um, eating beef is normal. But if you don't eat beef, like you know some Hindus do, then you're considered exotic or you know out of the normal. And you know as you know. So, you know, some a- Asian countries, for example, like in China, some people eat dogs, or in Japan, some people eat horses and or kill whales, and you know, it's considered brutal. But when you know, when we eat, you know, something like beef or pork, it's considered, you know, an, a normal thing because it's part of the American lifestyle. And mm. I, I just want to ask, um, do you buy into this sort of mentality? I I know it's like in an ideal world, it's very easy to say that. Oh, um. You know, uh, but we have to respect different cultures and to really view you know different cultures according to um you know their own customs and such. But you know um also, for example, in more controversial topics like in some cultures they have arranged marriage or in some cultures perhaps they um encourage um you know um perhaps you know even borderlines on human rights abuse in terms of torture or um some kind of more perhaps more pr- primal um. Justice systems. Will you condone such um, such actions um, in the name of you know cultural diversity, or do you think there uh, if it really harms the um, rights of a, a, an individual, that's where we draw the line? Right. Actually, that's such a good question, which I think we will also elaborate more on that in future episodes. But yeah, like how do we draw the line between you know respecting a different culture or being open-minded versus you know. Keeping truth to our own principles, like this is wrong, and we, we I don't, you know, I, I don't condone that. And and I think as someone who grew up and I was raised by the Asian culture, I think I will be more likely to kind of respect, even though I disagree, than you know stepping out and say you're wrong. I guess I think we definitely have. I mean, I guess this is not just like an individual personal value, but it definitely is quite cultural because. Yeah, I guess when we were studying TOK, we have um, like our teacher is uh, was raised in the American culture, and she has a very different point of view than some so on some issues compared with us and the rest of the class actually. Um, so yeah, for me personally, I would I, I think I will definitely talk more about this in our future episodes where we have like a whole section dedicated to this idea, um, but. Yeah, I think it's definitely a very hard line for me to draw, and I think it definitely depends on the situation. I mean, you can. I, I'm studying in like an ethics course, in business ethics course, and we talked about like you know John Locke and that kind of human rights idea. Um, however, John Locke's like this philosophy. It's from this moral ethics 
you know, theory, it's from quite a Western point of view. He basically says like humans, we we are born with human certain unalienable human rights. However, how do we determine what are these rights? Um, I think it's definitely up for debate for different cultures. So for me, my principle, I'm just gonna repeat this again, is that I possibly would respect culture that I think it's completely wrong. And I you know, was like, whoa, why are you doing this? I will respect that, but I will not agree with it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's... that's a good approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, from just now, the examples from the monkey business solution, the gorilla lung scan, and also different perceptions of cows and dogs, we can see that the idea of reality and our right or wrong morals or belief systems is actually quite interior and it only exists within us. You know, we think that these are shared values, are kind of quite universal, quite exterior or, or objective, but I guess it's not as exterior as we think it is or believe it to be. Okay, so I'm gonna move on to some exciting things, some examples that kind of make you question the common sense reality that we have. The first example I have is Schrodinger's cat. So we also discussed this in our TOK classes. Um, so what it is, is basically like a thought experiment. And what a thought experiment means is that it only relies on imagination of the consequence. Um, so basically, what this Schrodinger's cat experiment is, is that there's a cat, it's being put inside a sealed box with a flask of poison and a radioactive source. If the internal monitor inside the box, the sealed box, detects radioactivity, which is basically the radioactive source is starting to decay, then the flask containing the poison will break and kill the cat. So. If this is like, what is happening? It's basically like there's a silent bomb placed inside a box. And no one knows whether it's going to explode and, or when it's going to explode. And then that's basically it. And so it's kind of basically said that before we open that sealed box, the cat is both alive and dead, according to quantum physics. However, as we open the box and observe whether the cat is alive or dead, the two coexisting realities will force one of them to collapse because, you know, the cat cannot be both alive and dead. But before we open the box, according to quantum physics, the cat is both alive and dead. So, so Schrodinger actually uses this to kind of illustrate just how absurd quantum physics is. Like, how can a cat be both alive and dead? Um, so, however, this isn't very much true. So. For physics HL students, uh, <laughs> I think in the last chapter we kind of touched upon this, the state of the cat being both alive and dead until it's being observed is called superposition. It didn't really work for the cats because uh, it's it, it has such a high momentum. <laughs> I possibly will explain that, but then you definitely can see this phenomenon happening for electrons. So basically, the electrons behave both as a particle and a wave, which is called the wave-particle duality. From the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, we see that the state of superposition cannot be observed, which is like the fact that the two, two things, which is the cat being both alive and dead, existing as you know one reality, cannot really be observed, because once it's being observed, the superposition collapses, and there's only kind of one reality that we see, which is the cat being alive or dead. So this also relates to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, 
which states that the more precisely we know about a particle's position, the less certain we are about the particle's momentum uh, slash speed and vice versa. So momentum is basically mass times speed anyway. So then, yeah, I would say momentum slash speed for this situation. And relating this Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to the wave-particle duality, the particle-like behavior of particles uh, relates to the uncertainty of position, which is basically particles, like its definition, is just one singular thing that exists at one specific time in space. And the wave behavior of particles relates to the uncertainty and momentum, where the waves have, because waves have wavelengths, and the wavelength is related to the speed of the particle. Um, the reason is because like wavelength is technically a length, so it's a distance. And if you measure the time it took for a wave to travel one wavelength, you get the speed of the wave because it's just distanced over time and then you get the speed of the waves thing. And this is related to momentum because momentum is defined as mass times speed. And when we are measuring the momentum of this particle, we have more uncertainty in its position since we observe the wave-like quantities of the particle as we are measuring its momentum. However, waves don't have a specific position. So let's think of like a ripple pond. The waves are all over the place when you are measuring the momentum. We're measuring the wavelength. It's kind of like the ripple thing. You don't really know the position. So this is kind of like the uncertainty principle. When you're certain about the wavelength, which is the momentum, you're uncertain about the position. So basically kind of relating this to Schrodinger's cathode experiment, although the particle exhibits both wave and particle-like behaviors, we're only able to measure one of them with precision. So like the previous example that I stated, if we measure the wavelength slash the momentum, we won't be able to know the position. So we can only measure one, either the position or the wavelength. So this is kind of like the cat thing. The cat is both alive and dead, but then when, when you observe it, we can only observe one, which is alive or dead. So the two won't coexist. Similarly, this, you, we can't measure both. We can observe both the, the, the position and this momentum. And okay, so the reason why we don't see superposition happening on a cat is because a cat is much more massive than an electron or atom. Since, uh, therefore, since momentum is mass times speed, it will have an extremely big momentum because it's very massive. So this means the cat will have a very small wavelength. And according to de Broglie's equation, which wavelength equals to Planck's constant over momentum, this wavelength is so small that we won't be able to observe the cat behaving like a wave. Okay, I've said so much and <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot and this is kind of confusing because quantum mechanics, I think even like, I think the, the guy, Richard Feynman even said like, no one understands quantum physics. So yeah, but if you want to know more, I have a TED-Ed video. I will put that in the description that explains it pretty well. So then, yeah, basically that, that previous example that we found that we just talked about the Schrodinger scout, the electron, everything kind of just illustrates how the quantum world doesn't match with the Newtonian world or the world that we experience. So essentially, yeah, Joshua, as someone who didn't take physics, what do you think about this? <laughs> Is it mind blowing or like, you know, weird? 
Yeah, the the first time I've heard the NTOK class, I don't like you know, me being unfamiliar with the concept. I find it quite bizarre because the idea that um you know, something can exist, you know, ha- can be in both positions at the same time, it's quite you know mind blowing to me. But then later, I found out that it's actually you know you know it's relevant in a lot of different um uh fields. So not only in physics but in chemistry, we also learned about you know Schrödinger's um. Kind, of, kind of approach to understanding electrons. So, sometimes um, an electron could be in two places at the same time while it's orbit orbiting around a nucleus because um, it's moving so fast and we're really not sure about the exact positions. So we we'll, we can only calculate the position of electrons using um per- perhaps like a using a possibility model in which we can calculate the possibility of an electron being there but we can never be completely certain that an electron is there at a certain period of time and mostly because of technological limitations in the sense that um, we, we're not able to monitor electrons as closely as as quickly as they move around so yeah it's def- I think it's definitely you know used more in more academia point of view and but I think um, you know, on, on on another hand, it can also be used in a more philosophical approach. So, um, it's it sort of plays into this idea that reality is what we make it. So, um, you know, if we don't see a thing, we're no, we can't be completely certain that that thing is there. And you know, this plays with the idea of certainty and the yeah idea of um not of the idea of like theories of knowledge in the, in sense in the terms of you no know, philosophical, um field of uh, field of study so um yeah and also later i, I think we'll talk more uh, we'll talk uh, some things about um perhaps something like uh the the theory of mind and understanding you know uh, what is certainty and you know we, we always heard the uh, we always heard the phrase um i think therefore i am and we'll learn more about how this plays into the idea of certainty and what we can be certain of. So, yeah, I think I, I, yeah. I dragged on the topic to a bit too far, but, you know, it, it, bringing back to the idea of, you know, Schrodinger's cat, um, you know, I think definitely to a lay person and who who's perhaps less involved in the field of science, this may be a very bizarre and um, kind of a weird um, concept to grasp, but I think it definitely is a very multifaceted um a concept that can be applied across multiple multiple fields. Yeah, agree. So we're going to move on to like an even more bizarre thing, which is called the simulation hypothesis. So we're going to start with some simulation games, some VRs, and then we go on to like this idea that our world is perhaps a simulation. So before we move on to that, I want you to just after all of those things, we just have one takeaway is that the state of the cat being both alive and dead until it's being observed is called superposition. So just keep that in mind that, you know, the reality of whether the cat is alive or dead, we can only know when it's being observed. Keep that in mind because <laughs> we are going to move on to some really, you know, mind-blowing things. So basically, because, I mean, this we are talking about reality for this for this um, episode, like some fun examples about it. So I guess one we can talk about is like the simulation games and like, you know, how real are they and stuff like that. Um, or VR games, like how does wearing some glasses, you know, how does that contribute to your reality? 
uh, and what you see with your senses. So basically, the simulation hypothesis is that similar to the idea of like Sims Four or I think the Matrix, it proposes the idea that we're just kind of living in a computer simulation. And that everything is part of an elaborate video game.、Um, I found a Vox article, which is about are we living in a computer simulation? Don't know. I don't know. Probably. That's that's the title of the article, and I will link that in the description. Which、um, basically Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom kind of first proposed this idea, and I think most famously we know like Elon Musk has talked about it. That there is a good chance that we are living. In a simulation world, and then this Fox article basically presents us an interview with Rizwan Verk, which is a computer scientist and computer game designer, and he wrote the book The Simulation Hypothesis, and this is also kind of related. This article also relates to Schrodinger's cat, and we will kind of explore why. And basically, this、um, article just also emphasizes the fact that. Very likely, we're living in a simulation, and actually, many quantum physics could be explained better with simulated hypothesis than material hypothesis. The example they gave is the one and only Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> well, not really only, not really one and only, because there's possibilities. <laughs> But basically, Schrodinger's cat is basically telling us that we will only know the state of the cat when we observe it. When we don't observe it, we don't know it's both alive and dead. But when we observe it, we know that okay, it's dead or alive. And what this actually suggests is that our reality is formed only when we observe it. So we don't really know what reality is until we look at it. Because right now I'm looking at my computer screen. I'm Zoom chatting with with Joshua, <laughs> but then. What goes on in the back of my head? I don't know. Maybe as I turn, that reality just formed for me. There's just my brain is kind of like a computer, and then when I turn, that reality behind my 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 back just forms in front of my eyes. That is also kind of possible. So basically, this is just kind of suggesting that our reality is formed only when we observe it, and actually. This article relates this to like computer simulation games, and suggesting why we live in a computer simulation is that, you know, a few decades ago there's the game Pac-Man, and we can't really render the games like The Sims 4 or like World of Warcraft. I've never played it, but you know, I I know that there are games that are super well rendered that they look like you know they look so real, and all of these games. Because we don't have enough computing power to render all those pixels decades ago, so we can only make Pac-Man. However, right now, we can render all those computer games that are extremely detailed, because we now know how to optimize it. The trick is to render and create those that are being observed. So basically, when you as a player didn't see the realities, didn't see the the the. Games world of other places they don't really exist. So only when you see it, when your perspective kind of just moves around that game world, that reality is being formed right before your eyes. So essentially, this is extremely like Schrodinger's cat that our reality is only formed when we observe it. So in these games, 
that the reality of what you see in the game only creates or only starts to render when you're observing it. So Schrodinger's cat is about our reality. It's the world that we know of right now as we are understanding more about quantum physics. However, the computer simulation, it's so similar to our reality, basically. You know, yeah. how we start to make games, computers and graphics. The way we do that is so similar to how, we, how, how our reality works under quantum physics, um, which is, you know, kind of crazy to think <laughs> about this, that yeah. it's, it's just the similarity between computer simulations and versus, you know, our realities on quantum physics. So that was kind of like how the article relates these two ideas together. And also states that it's much easier for civilizations to create more simulations than for us to exist as biological beings. Because you, we can, it's definitely more possible to live in, you know, there are possibly like millions of simulation worlds out there and there's only one that is real, that is the most organic form. And it's much probable to exist in those billions of simulation worlds than exist in that one real world. <laughs> and I think Neil deGrasse Tyson also chatted about this. And then he also mentioned that the similarities of all of these civilizations is that they can create car, uh, car they can create copies of themselves. However, our civilization is yet to do so. So maybe what that implies is that we are the original one or we haven't really advanced enough yet to reach to that level where we can make a copy of ourselves. So that's the simulation hypothesis. <laughs> How do you feel after all of this? Oh my gosh, kind of. It feels like our existence is really dismal and <laughs> it's like, it feels very, um, it feels like you can't trust anything anymore. <laughs> it's sort of like we're living a lie. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And like, I guess, you know, I, I guess this actually, when I kind of realized that our world is possibly a si simulation, it's that I kind of feel very happy, like relieved even. That, you know, when I'm feeling kind of down or like I feel trash or like I put too much pressure on myself, you know, not up to my standards, I will convince myself that it's really nothing. It's just a simulation world. We are just living in, in an illusion. We are not, you know, real by our definitions. So I guess main message is just don't take, too, don't take yourself way too seriously or be too harsh on yourself. It's we're just living in the game. So enjoy this game. And hopefully the person who is controlling you is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely like a nihilistic stand could also be a comfort sometimes because <laughs> if you know so, sometimes you know people feel insecure because you know they're um um because they're they feel like their existence is quite you know this um uh, quite um small and it kind of brings like a kind of a midlife crisis to them this kind of anxiety surrounding whether their existence actually mean anything but i think on another hand it also lends itself to the idea that because nothing actually means anything and so there's actually no actual consequences to everything we've done so in some sort of way it's in a twisted kind of way it's kind of like a comfort 
perhaps. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, right. I guess. I guess that's it for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> it gets way too、um, weird at the very end. So, yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast. I hope, like from today, you have more of an understanding of reality. Also, some fun things about Schrodinger's cat, as well as the simulation hypothesis that our world is maybe just a simulation. So, the next episode, we're possibly going to talk more about the theories of reality. The Philosophy aspect of it. So please keep an eye out for new episodes, and we'll see you next time on the Uncommon Senses. Oh, baby.